Bye. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. Well, um, as COVID-19 continues, um, a lot of people have been focused on the respiratory system. Um, but as this virus evolves, more scientists are studying what the impact on the brain um, may be. So joining us today, we have Dr. Emily Troyer. She's at um, UC San Diego and um, joins us um, from San Diego. Thanks very much, Emily, for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So um, let's just start with, um, you know, I, I love how what your research is doing is you're studying um, past pan pandemics and looking at um, what other pandemics, um, what impact other um, pandemics had on the brain. So let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the history behind your research. Yeah, so um, it's a really fascinating question. We actually published a paper back in April and um, that was before a lot was known about COVID-19 or the effects on the brain and the nervous system. And so really our inspiration was um, going back in the history book and reading about something called encephalitis lethargica. And um, this is really uh, an in inflammation of the brain that affected hundreds of thousands of people around the beginning of the 20th century. And um, it happened a long time ago. So we don't know exactly what was the cause of this, but it, it occurred around the time of the last major influenza pandemic. And so we've always thought that this may be related to the influenza virus or to the, the body's immune response to the virus that causes them this inflammation of the brain. Um, that, you know, neuroinflammation is, is not a good thing. It's, it's certainly, um, uh, especially with Alzheimer's, it, it seems to be at that point with all uh, people who have dementia, when neuroinflammation occurs, um, dementia, uh, symptoms of dementia become more apparent. Um, so can, are you studying this in, in the context of neurodegeneration? So we're really looking at it broadly. Um, because inflammation isn't good for the brain at any point in development. Um, so babies who are in utero and exposed to moms with inflammatory disorders or other infectious diseases, children with inflammation, adults with inflammation, aging individuals with inflammation, inflammation just isn't good for the brain in general. So um, we are looking at what does inflammation associated with COVID-19 do for individuals who are at risk for neurodegenerative disorders? Or does that perpetuate cognitive decline? Um, but it, it may also be the case that inflammation at much earlier points in development may also sort of be one of those environmental factors that additively contributes to um, advanced aging. So, um, you know, what's interesting to me is I and you know, I'm speaking to an ER doctor uh, who had been um, through that first wave in New York. And um, what he was noting is 
as they were seeing more COVID patients, they were actually detecting more symptoms in the brain. Um, and that was that first kind of initial wave of, of patients. So what do we know today about how COVID, I mean, we obviously know it takes a toll on the respiratory system, um, on the lungs uh, with, with pneumonia, um, but what, what exactly do we know about how the virus um, penetrates, if I can use that word, uh, uh, the brain? Well, we know that there have been a lot of neurologic and psychiatric symptoms that have been described in COVID-19 patients. And so the list is really long at this point. Um, we know that if you're hospitalized for COVID-19, um, about a third of patients will have some kind of neurologic symptom. The most common is confusion um, or delirium, basically, which is a confusional state. Strokes are also um, occurring in individuals with severe COVID-19. Um, so those are really the most common and severe, but it could be something as, as small as just losing your sense of taste, losing your sense of smell, um, having a headache, feeling fatigued. So the range of things that, that we're seeing in terms of neuropsychiatric symptoms in COVID-19 patients is, is really broad and it, we're learning more every day. Is it normal for viruses to, to attack the brain? Well, it's, it is normal for people with infectious um, illnesses to experience a lot of what I'm describing. And that's because it may not be the virus itself that's attacking the brain. It may be the body's immune system trying to fight off the virus, which then has, which is helpful for the body. It's helpful to get rid of the virus, but then that has maybe some unintended side effects for the brain, if you will. So it is common for people to, who are in the hospital or who are in an ICU in particular to be confused and to experience a lot of the neuropsychiatric symptoms that, that I've described. What I think is different about COVID is we wouldn't necessarily expect any infectious illness to cause um, the proportion of strokes that we're seeing, for example, in COVID-19 patients. And we think that's probably because COVID-19 makes the blood more likely to clot and cause clotting problems all across the body, including in the brain. Yeah, and certainly um, strokes aren't, um, aren't, yeah, can have um, lasting impact, obviously. Sorry. And so um, do we, uh, when, when you looked at, I, I want to go back to the past pandemics again, because, um, and, and I assume you're talking about around 1914, where we had, um, that's the year of, of the last really big, um, pandemic that killed a lot of people. At that time, did we know? Um, was the was were people um, dying from neurological conditions, or was it um, the after after studying what happened afterwards that we were seeing more neuropsychiatric conditions? So, with encephalitis, lethargica, of course, a lot of people died from influenza. Um, you know that is is definitely true, but when we talk about encephalitis lethargica, we're really talking about delayed effects in people who survived influenza. 
so um, we don't think that it was a direct cause of influenza per se, because these are individuals who had that and then survived. And then weeks or days, weeks or months later, started to develop other problems. Um, the most common problem in encephalitis lethargica is sleep disturbances, which is where it gets its name. The encephalitis lethargica basically means sleepy or sleeping syndrome. And so it was very common for people to be very tired, to sleep a lot more than usual, to seem cognitively slower, to be emotionally depressed um, for, for several years. And it's interesting around the same time that encephalitis lethargica was being described, um, Alois Alzheimer was also describing neurofibrillary plaques and tangles. And there is some overlap in some autopsy studies of encephalitis lethargica, you see accumulation of plaques and tangles in parts of the brain that are helpful for controlling movement. And that's different, of course, from where the plaques and brains start with Alzheimer's. Usually it's, it's in the hippocampus, but I, I'm, I'm assuming these were probably studied at a later stage. So plaques and tangles as, as the disease evolves um, spreads to many parts of the brain. What does this mean? Sorry, did you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, I, I will say that encephalitis lethargica looked a lot more like Parkinson's disease, actually. Um, and oh, so the plaques and tangles were really um, concentrated in areas of the brainstem that make dopamine and help with movement. And that's very similar to Parkinson's disease. But it's interesting that on in these pathologic studies, you're seeing an Alzheimer's type pathology contributing to a Parkinson's-like disease. Um, so it, it is interesting. So what does this mean? I mean, do we actually know today how uh, COVID-19 is impacting? I mean, you talked about a long list of symptoms, but we do we know uh, really how it's attacking the brain? I mean, what what's what's going on inside our brains um, to put it at risk if you are a COVID patient? Right. So we we really don't know, unfortunately. Um, we know that there are a lot of potential ways um, that COVID could influence the brain and influence cognition and influence behavior. Um, I think that it's probably um, with the autopsy studies that we're seeing in COVID-19, it's, it's probably less likely that it's the virus directly entering the, the nervous system. So the virus is rarely actually getting to the spinal cord or getting to the brain. That doesn't mean that it isn't wreaking havoc though, because um, like I said, I think it's the immune system that's probably mediating a lot of the the neurologic symptoms that we're seeing afterwards. So when your body mounts an immune response, you, you shoot off a cascade of chemicals or inflammatory cytokines to fight the infection. And unfortunately, those can communicate with the brain or can cross the blood-brain barrier and um, contribute to neuroinflammation. So I think a lot of the neuropsychiatric complications that we're seeing or may start to see over the coming years and decades are probably in some way going to be related to that neuroinflammation. 
And, and we had a question um, that it was asked um, from someone in our community saying, you know, what's the most current information regarding effects of COVID on those already suffering from Alzheimer's, um, specifically early onset Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia? Are these patients being handled differently since they are already, uh, since they are already severely compromised? Um, this pre-existing comorbidity in terminal patients is never mentioned. Do we know, um, is, is it impacting people? I mean, we certainly know it's disproportionately impacting people in care homes and care facilities and those people, um, many of them um, do have dementia. So do we know if, if the, the virus is actually um, presenting itself in a different way with people, uh, in people with dementia? Right. So if you look back to, you know, again, this is all very new. So if you look back to just a few months ago, we had a, a couple studies out of the United Kingdom and Italy that showed in long-term care facilities, there is a higher risk of developing COVID if you have dementia. Um, but again, those are small studies and they're in those long-term care facilities where maybe the risk of contracting the virus is related to being in such close quarters with other people. Um, but actually a study just came out of South Korea last week that I think was very interesting in that for the past several months, we've really heard a lot about how hypertension and cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, are risk factors for developing COVID or for having a complicated or severe COVID or even for for dying from COVID. And what this study from South Korea showed last week is that actually the three biggest risk factors for death from COVID in their hospitalized patients were age over 70, uh, lung disease, or Alzheimer's disease specifically. And so what that says to me is that it's not just dementia broadly that could be a risk factor, um, for COVID or for complicated COVID, although that may be true, but it might be that Alzheimer's disease specifically, independent of age, is a risk factor for severe COVID and, and possibly death from COVID, unfortunately. So what is your study um, looking for? I mean, it's it's ultimately, I, you know, I, I think you're dealing a lot with a neuropsychiatric, maybe you could define, you know, what you mean by neuropsychiatric conditions. What does that include? And um, what ultimately are you looking for to solve one piece of this puzzle? Yeah, so I, I use the term neuropsychiatric to really mean anything that involves the brain. Um, in modern medicine, and we've kind of put neurology in a corner and psychiatry in a corner, but at the end of the day, they're both they're both groups of brain disorders. And so, um, what we were really interested in is okay, if if COVID can influence the brain or the immune system can influence the brain after COVID, what could happen? And that could be neurologic diseases or psychiatric disorders like depression, anxiety, post traumatic stress disorder as well as neurologic or uh, syndromes that have features of both, maybe like neurodegenerative disorders. Um, so our, our broad review at first was really, let's just look at how we think this could manifest in any of those realms. And what we're working on right now is um, 
actually we we don't have all of our data collected yet but um we're getting measures of um cognitive function and psychiatric domains like depression anxiety and trauma related symptoms in aging adults in in the community in san diego who may not have necessarily been personally infected with COVID-19, but who are just living through the stress of the pandemic. And I think that brings up the other side of this point that it's not just about what is the virus doing to the body and the brain, but even if you don't get the virus, what are the effects of the pandemic um, on neuropsychiatric symptoms? And I guess, I mean, you know, if, if only we had these answers, but like another virus, Viruses, um, was there any type of medication that would actually stop the damage in the brain? I mean, what do we know from history? Obviously, we don't know what the solution is with this one, but looking back on past viruses, I mean, you know, past coronaviruses, um, what happened there? I mean, is there any evidence of maybe how we should treat this in the future? Right. So that's a, an excellent question. And, and really, we, we don't have a good answer right now. And I, I think, you know, my, my thoughts on why we really don't have a good answer, even looking to past pandemics or past outbreaks, is that if you look at influenza pandemics, um, those were over 100 years ago now, now that we had a really major global pandemic. And medicine at the time, it was just very, very different. And we do have treatments now for seasonal influenza infections um, because that's something we've been living with ever since then. Um, but then the most recent coronavirus outbreaks like SARS in 2002 and MERS um, a little bit later in that decade, those were, were shorter outbreaks that affected significantly less of the global population. And so to be honest, I think that we we didn't have to really examine or live with the neuropsychiatric sequela of those outbreaks in the way that we're going to have to with COVID-19. And so I think we're really in uncharted territory here in terms of developing treatments because we've just really never been in this position before. Well, it's interesting. I remember talking to a scientist who told me that you know, because um, SARS was first dealt with um, quite efficiently, they, they managed, I mean, you know, I'm here in Hong Kong and um, the government did quite a good job of managing it um, to, you know, preventing it from spreading. Science kind of dropped uh, um, the focus of SARS. And in fact, that could have actually helped us with Corona where we are today because they're both coronaviruses. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting to me to try to put the pieces together. And MERS is another example. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it impacted not a, a huge amount of people. Um, what those it did though, it severely impacted. Um, are coronaviruses more tricky than the other viruses like the H, you know, the, the H1, H5 um, flus? Are, are coronas um, viruses just more difficult to understand or do we know less about them? Well, I, you know, I will preface this by saying that I'm not a virologist by any means. Um, so I'm, I'm a psychiatrist by training. And, and so um, when it comes down to the viruses themselves, um, I, I don't know that coronaviruses are necessarily more tricky. Um, we do know, though, that 
the coronaviruses that we know about, that we know cause things like the common cold in humans, or coronaviruses that we've studied for a long time in mice, they they impact the brain. And um, so I think that's a, a characteristic of coronaviruses that we have appreciated for a long time. And we've we've used that in the research setting, like um, you can cause a multiple sclerosis like illness in mice, for example, by giving them a mouse strain of a coronavirus. So, but we've never really used that to develop treatments um, for a pandemic like this, um, because we've just really never faced a coronavirus pandemic of, of this scale before. Yeah, it's it it is really interesting and um, urgent as your research is much appreciated. Um, you know, to really try to understand this virus better, um, put the pieces together. I know it's a great concern to a lot of people in our community who are impacted by neurodegeneration. So thank you so much, Emily, um, for your work. Um, we we really appreciate it, and for you to take the time to to share uh, some of your insights with us. Yeah, of course. Thank you. So, uh, thank you. So, if you want to watch um, this talk, if you missed some of it in its entirety, uh, we always post these talks on beingpatient.com. Sign up for our newsletter if you want to know more about uh, what types of experts we're going to be interviewing in the future. I certainly am fascinated by this topic. Um, we will look for more experts to talk to, like Emily, to provide us with insight. So, thanks very much for watching, and we'll see you next time.